you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. And uh, this morning our focus is going to be on verses 1 through 12. And uh, we will read that portion together here in just a moment. I just want to make kind of a comment about Romans 14 and 15 as a whole. And kind of set it within the context of all of Romans. We've come now to really what is Paul's last major exhortation to the church in Rome. This theme of dwelling together in unity and serving the same Lord is the theme that runs through really the the rest of chapter 14 and chapter 15. And then once you get to chapter 16, much of it is just uh, Paul's benedictions and, and blessings and recommendations of people. So this is really the the last major exhortation of Paul in in this letter. And I think that much of what he has been writing, really in the whole letter, but especially in chapter 12 and 13, has been kind of laying the groundwork, preparing us for this last final exhortation. Because in chapter 12 and chapter 13 especially, Paul's main focus has been on, one, the fact that we are completely God's. We completely belong to Him. And that we, we owe God. We are to offer Him our whole selves as a living sacrifice. And then the way that Paul fleshed that out then was mostly focused on love on the way that we love one another as believers, the way that we love our neighbor as ourselves. That that was the very last thing that he talked about at the end of chapter 13, was love is really the summation of the law and the prophets. And so he's been kind of building toward this, especially in chapter 12 and 13, but really in, in some of the things that we'll see in chapter 14 and 15, there are themes that draw us all the way back to the beginning of the letter. And, and we see different things that Paul has been alluding to and talking about. And I think they, they all kind of come together in this last final exhortation. And so I think this is, this is really important for Paul. I think this is one of the main reasons why he's writing this letter. And the, the foundation of the gospel, the, the call to love, and now he's giving this last really specific exhortation that dealt with a particular situation that was going on in the Roman church. And he is wanting them to to dwell together in unity because apparently there have been some disputes and disagreements about how we best live out the will of God in our lives in conformity to his word. And so Paul wants them to, to join together, to live in unity, and to live in love with one another. So a lot, I think, has been building toward this last exhortation. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, and I really don't think that we'll be able to get all the way through that passage today. And I, I, the re- reason is because I really think it's important to lay the groundwork for these two chapters in addressing who it is that Paul is talking about, why it is that he is addressing this issue. What was, what was the disagreement? What was the dispute about? And, and I think if we need to understand that 
before we can understand what Paul is saying, and, and especially then how we apply these words to our lives. Because I think Romans 14 and 15 have been abused a lot in interpretation and in application by Christians. Because Romans 14 and 15 deals with what Paul calls disputable matters. And so you've got, you've got extremes then in the way that I think Romans 14 and 15 have been handled improperly. One, I think Romans 14 and 15 has been too broadly applied to too many issues. And that's one of the reasons why I want to zero in on who Paul is talking about in this passage and and what the real issue is. Because I think Romans 14 and 15 has been applied too broadly to just about any area of Christian disagreement. And I'm not convinced that's what Paul's main point is in this passage. Another thing that I think has been handled wrongly is that depending on which end of the spectrum you are on these disputable matters, I think there has been the tendency to hold it over the head of the other person, of the other side. So, for example, if somebody is more restrictive, conservative, you know, holds a harder line, a narrower application of the scriptures than somebody else, they sometimes will hold it over the head of somebody who has maybe a more liberated or freedom view of that and say, well, Paul says in this passage that you're supposed to respect me and love me, and so you're not supposed to do that thing so you don't cause me to stumble and don't offend me. And so it kind of ends up being like uh, a stick that's held over people's heads and saying, you've got to, you got to conform to me. On the other, other side of it, you know, you've got those who are of a, maybe a more freedom-liberated view who say, you're not supposed to judge me. So Paul in this passage says, you're not supposed to be in judgment of me. And so I think you've got two extremes in the way that this passage sometimes is misapplied. And also I think sometimes it's applied too broadly to too many matters of disagreement among Christians. And so I hope that, that we can get some clarity and, and, and carefully walk through this passage and, and really try to understand what Paul is saying to them so that we can understand what he's saying to us. But one of the principles of proper Bible interpretation that I was taught, it was hammered into me in college and seminary, is a text of Scripture can never mean what it never meant. In other words, in order for us to really understand Scripture and apply it today, First, we have to really understand what it meant to the people that it was originally written to. And so for us to be able to apply Romans 14 and 15 in 2019, we have to really clearly understand what Paul was saying to the Romans in AD 60. We've got to know what the situation was. So then we can then build some bridges to application to our day. But we've got to start there. And so I hope that we can do that and then try to apply it to our our lives today as Christians. But let's read this passage together and then we'll try to gain a framework for understanding this whole passage. Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, Paul says to the Christians in Rome, Accept 
the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and give thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then... Why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, I pray that you would help us today as we read and think about, meditate on these words of Paul, this uh, servant, this apostle that you have called to give us truth, that your Holy Spirit inspired to give us these words. So Lord, these are your words. These are your words. They're authoritative. They're the words of the Lord. So Lord, may we submit ourselves, humble ourselves before them, and may we seek to understand them and rightly put them into practice in our lives. Lord, bless this time, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think where I'd like to start is just asking this question. Who are the weak and who are the strong? So who does Paul mean when he refers to those who are weak? And who, is, who does he mean, who is he referring to when he refers to those who are strong? First of all, let me just give some words of Paul from this passage. So what I'm going to do is some of these are drawn from the 12 verses that we read. Some of them are drawn from a little bit later in chapter 14 and into chapter 15. But I want to kind of bring together all these comments that Paul makes about who the weak are and then all the comments about who he says the strong are. And just at, at first, just kind of let Paul's words stand for themselves. So who are the weak? Well, in verse 1, Paul says... Their faith is weak. He says, those who are weak in faith. In verse 2, he defines or describes the weak as those who eat only vegetables. In verse number 5, he describes the weak as those who consider one day more sacred or more, more holy than another. 
In verse number 14, he describes the weak as someone who regards something, or probably food, as unclean. So someone who regards a certain kind of food as unclean. In verse 21, it is implied that the the person who is weak abstains from the drinking of wine. Verse number 21. In chapter 15, verse 1, Paul talks about the the frailties or the infirmities or the, the, the failings of the weak. In chapter 14, verse 3, he says that the weak have an obligation to not judge those who are strong. In chapter 14, verse 13, he says that those who are weak must stop passing judgment on one another. In chapter 14, verse 19, probably applying to both sides, he says, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. In chapter 15, verse 7, he says, accept one another. And in chapter 14, verse 23, he says of the weak, don't eat, don't partake, if you are not fully convinced in your own mind, or if if it is not of faith. Because he says, if it is not of faith, if you are not fully convinced in your mind, then it is sin, if you partake. So those are just some of the statements of Paul about those who are weak. So why does he call them weak? We'll get into that in a moment. Why, why are these people abstaining from food, certain kinds of food, or observing certain kind of days? We'll get into that in a moment. I just want to kind of, here are the labels that Paul has applied to the weak. Now, what about the strong? In chapter 14, verse 2, Paul says of the strong that their faith allows them to eat anything. In chapter 14, verse 5, He says of the strong that they consider every day alike as opposed to the weak who regard one day as special or as holy. In chapter 14, verse 1, the particular responsibility of the strong is to accept, to receive the weak. In chapter 14, verse 1, he says, don't quarrel over disputable matters. In chapter 14, verse 3, he says, don't treat with contempt those who are weak. In chapter 14, verse 13, he says, don't put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister who is weak. In chapter 14, verse 15, he says, act in love rather than causing a weak brother or sister to be distressed, he says in chapter 14, verse 15. In chapter 14, verse 16, he says, don't let your good be spoken of as evil. Chapter 14, verse 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. In chapter 14, verse 20, he says, don't destroy the work of God for food. So, the, the strong believes he can eat anything, but Paul is saying to the strong, don't destroy the work of God just for food. Don't cause a weaker brother or sister to stumble. That's in chapter 14, verse 20. 
chapter 14, verse 21, refrain from eating meat and drinking wine so as not to cause a brother or sister to fall. Chapter 14, verse 22, he says to the strong, keep your liberty between yourself and God. In chapter 15, verse 1, he says to bear with the failings of the weak. In chapter 15, verse 2, he says that we ought to please our neighbors for their good and seek to build them up. And in chapter 15, verse 7, he says, accept one another as Christ accepted you. And so to frame the whole passage, chapter 14, verse 1, and then the end of it in chapter 15, verse 7, the theme that comes at the beginning and at the end is the call to accept. The call to receive those who are weak. To receive others because Christ received you. And so he has some things to say to the weak. He has some things to the strong. So now, what are these disputable matters? What is the disagreement? Who are these two parties, more specifically? In the next little bit, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of summarize and paraphrase from Doug Moo's commentary on Romans, because I I think he just very, very clearly and succinctly lays out the different possibilities and then gives some very clear reasons why we should understand it in one particular way. And so I want to kind of just paraphrase, summarize some of what he says. There are seven different views of who these two parties are, specifically who the weak are. We can pretty much identify who the strong are because Paul is one of them. So Paul considers himself to be one whose faith is strong and who has knowledge. So who is Paul? Paul is a Christian. Paul is a mature Christian. Paul is an apostle. And even more specifically specifically than that, Paul is a Jew who has become a believer in Jesus Christ. So he is a Jewish Christian, a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ, but who considers himself to be strong in faith and to have knowledge on these disputable things. So we can say the strong is represented pretty much by Paul. Who are the weak then? Who are these ones who have a more restrictive view of eating and, and drinking and special days and things like that? Who are, who are the weak? Seven different views. One is the weak could refer to non-Christian Jews. One view, another view is that the weak were mainly Gentile Christians who abstained from meat and perhaps wine, particularly on certain fast days under the influence of certain pagan religions in Rome. A third view is that the weak were Christians, perhaps both Jewish and Gentile, who practiced an ascetic lifestyle. Asceticism meaning restrictive, harsher lifestyle. So going without, kind of a a monastic type lifestyle. He says it could be Jews or Gentiles, Christians, who have adopted a more ascetic lifestyle for reasons that we can't determine. 
A fourth view is that the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who observed certain practices derived from the Mosaic law out of a concern to establish righteousness before God. Now, that's very specific. Jewish Christians observing certain practices from the Mosaic law, but for a specific purpose, because they believed that they gained standing or justification with God on the basis of doing the law. That's one view. Another view is, this is the fifth view, that the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who followed a sectarian, ascetic, there's that word again, asceticism, ascetic program as a means of expressing their piety, their godliness. And this program may have been the product of syncretistic tendencies, meaning the the mixing of different ideas and philosophies and religions. A sixth view is that the weak were mainly Jewish Christians who, like some of the Corinthians, believed that it was wrong to eat meat that was sold in the marketplace and was probably tainted by idolatry. Paul specifically addresses that issue in 1 Corinthians 8-10. to And some think that's what he's talking about here as well. That food that was sold in the general marketplace but may have been tainted by offering that meat as sacrifice to pagan deities. Therefore, they refrain from eating that meat. The seventh view, and this is the one that he takes and argues for and presents reasons for, and this is the one that I feel is most compelling as well. The seventh view, the best way to understand who the weak were, is they were mainly Jewish Christians who refrained from certain kinds of food and observed certain days out of continuing loyalty to the Mosaic Law. So these are Jewish Christians who stayed away from certain foods and observed certain sacred days out of a continuing loyalty to the Mosaic Law. I think that's the best view, and and he gives many arguments in favor of that view from the passage. Let me just share a few of those. He says, first of all, basically what he's going to do in these arguments is he's going to cross off the list some of these other views that don't make sense in the passage. So the first view that I said was that possibly these were non-Christian Jews. Well, he immediately strikes that one off the list because in verses 5 through 9, it reveals that both the weak and the strong belong to Jesus Christ. So the weak cannot be unbelievers. So that view is crossed off the list. Secondly, he says, there's an abundant evidence that the dispute between the weak and the strong was rooted in differences between Jews and Gentiles. The relationship between these two groups has been a theme of Romans all the way since chapter 1. That's why I was saying what I did at the beginning, that I think in some of this, Paul is really bringing to a culmination a lot of what he's been saying through the whole letter. We, we have seen these, this relationship of Jew-Gentile going all the way back to chapter 1. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to whom? To the Jew first and also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. So he says there's a lot of evidence through the whole letter that the Jew-Gentile relationship is on Paul's mind. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that this disagreement between the weak and the strong had to do with Jewish versus Gentile things. 
And so that crosses off the list, some of the views that believed it was Gentiles. So we're focused on Jews. This is basically a Jewish issue, an origin for the position of those who are weak. Another argument for that, that we're dealing with a Jewish issue, is he uses the term unclean. Certain foods are deemed unclean. That was pretty much a technical term for the taboo foods from the Mosaic Law of Leviticus 11. And so we're probably dealing with a Jewish Mosaic Law issue when he refers to this, these disagreements and when he talks about these foods as being unclean. A third reason that we're probably talking about Jewish Christians observing the Mosaic Law is Paul has a plea for understanding and acceptance of the weak within the community, and this makes clear that they were not propagating a view that was contrary to the gospel. And so in that way, I think this in Romans is a little bit different than what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. Because in Galatians, Paul has very, very strong words. He begins Galatians by saying, if anybody preaches another gospel, let that person be accursed. So in in Galatians, the issue was Mosaic law regarding justification, regarding salvation. That's not what the issue is here. These are between brothers and sisters in Christ. So this this is not then one of the views that says this is Mosaic law to gain standing with God. Because that's a salvation issue. That's, that's a more serious doctrinal issue. That's not what we're dealing with here. Another thing is when Paul, that it's probably not the same specific issue as Corinthians, is because, is because Paul does not specifically mention food sacrificed to idols. He doesn't say that anywhere in this passage. And his reference to the observance of special days and abstention from wine makes it unlikely that the dispute in Romans is confined to the issue of food sacrificed to idols. It seems to be broader than that. And then his last reason is, he says, the practices that Paul attributes to the weak can be understood as a result of concerns to observe certain requirements of the Mosaic law. Abstention from meat and wine is, of course, not required by the Mosaic law. So the law of Moses didn't say you can't eat any meat. The law of Moses did not say you cannot drink of any fruit of the vine. The Mosaic law did not say that. But he says, in order to a a more scrupulous Jew, a more careful Jew, would sometimes avoid all meat in certain environments where they could not be sure that the meat had been been prepared in a kosher manner. So it was not just in, in the Jewish way of thinking with the clean and unclean foods. It's not just certain meats. We have, we have a list of those in Leviticus 11, certain foods and meats that had to be abstained from. But also for the Jew, it was also the manner in which that meat was prepared. So you could have a, a piece of beef, a piece of cow, which is fully within the, 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 the clean animals of Leviticus 11, but it may not have been prepared properly according to Jewish law, especially with regard to the draining of blood. 
And so not knowing how it might have been prepared, the Jew might have abstained from all meat, especially in maybe more mixed settings like you would have in a church that is composed of both Jew and Gentile. There may have been some who would abstain not knowing how it was prepared because they're still holding on to certain aspects of the Mosaic law. And same thing with wine. It could have been that they think, we don't know where this wine came from, how it was prepared. It could have been given as libation to a, a false deity. So just more scrupulous, not knowing where it came from in general may have caused them to abstain. He says, also then, when we come to uh, certain days, you know, we, we know for sure that the Mosaic Law stipulates the observance of many special religious days, the weekly Sabbath and the major religious festivals, and many first century Jews also observe weekly fasting and prayer days. So, most likely, we're dealing with a Jew-Gentile issue. Why, why do I spend time going through all that, laying out those different possibilities and all the reasons for this is most likely a Jew-Gentile first century gospel issue? Is because I think that understanding that helps us properly apply it to today. Let me just give you a couple of examples or of what I'm talking about, and I'll try to apply this message to us for this morning. One of, the, one of the ways that this passage, I think, is wrongly used is that this passage is used to kind of stand for and apply to all areas of Christian disagreement. All areas where one Christian says, I believe I have freedom in this matter, and another Christian says, no, I don't think that's right. And, they, and this passage is applied to all of those areas and all of these issues. But I question whether that application is legitimate when Paul is dealing with this specific issue of crossing from the Old Covenant to the New. And the specific challenges that were a part of that transitional era from the Old Covenant to the New. And how we now as New Covenant Christians relate to the Mosaic Law. I think that's a more specific issue than broadly applying it to all matters of disagreement. And the other thing, too, is that a lot of times this passage is applied to all areas of disagreement. And a, way, a lot of the times the way that it's, it's phrased is these areas of disagreement are not matters where Scripture directly speaks to. But here's the thing. In these matters of disagreement... Scripture did specifically speak to these things. Leviticus 11 says, do not eat these meats because they're unclean. One of these has to do with one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. One day, one the weak regards one day as special or sacred. The strong regard every day as alike. So it's not as simple as saying the disputable things are things that Scripture doesn't directly command or, or prohibit. But this is actually dealing with things that Scripture does say. But Scriptures that were given in the Old Covenant era. 
in the law of Moses and dealt with more uh, ritualistic ceremonial commands and prohibitions that now have been fulfilled in Christ. Paul's argument, I think, would be these things have now been fulfilled in Christ and they've reached their culmination in Christ. And those, those ordinances, those commands, especially the ones that separate Jew and Gentile, and I think that's really the issue here, especially those Old Testament Mosaic ordinances that keep Jews and Gentiles apart, those have been taken away by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can all become one new man in Christ under, in one fold under one shepherd. And so he, really what Paul's dealing with here is the right understanding of the Mosaic law as a new covenant Christian. That's really what he's dealing with here. And those who may have been Jews under the Mosaic law coming to faith in Christ, whose consciences are still bound by their loyalty to the Mosaic law. In other words, let's say you've been a Jew your whole life. You've been a Jew your whole life, but you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you come to the assembly of God where now there are Jews and Gentiles and you sit down for a feast together and you're sitting down at the same table as a Gentile and there is food placed before you. And you've been your whole life brought up as a Jew. That is a whole new world. That is a whole new world for you. And we could even use Peter and his response in Acts chapter 10 as the mindset. When God comes to Peter in Acts chapter 10 and Peter has this vision of this sheet with all these foods being brought down and the visions from the Lord says, Peter, arise up, kill and eat. And what was Peter's response? No, Lord, because nothing unclean has ever touched my mouth. That's the precise situation that some of these Jews felt themselves in. They are now in Christ. They believe Jesus Christ is their Messiah and their Savior, but their whole life they have lived under these obligations of the Mosaic Law, and they have never had a piece of unclean meat touch their mouth. And Paul is saying to the stronger Gentile Christians and maybe even stronger Jewish Christians such as himself who understands how all of this is now filled up in Christ. He says we ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. The failings of the weak show Christian love to them. And specifically, I think in showing Christian love, we're not wanting to cause the real issue here is we don't want to cause a weak brother or sister to do something that is against their conscience. Something that they believe is wrong, strongly held, and from the word of God that they believe is wrong. But it's because they still have a very shallow, very new, Paul I think would say very, at to this point, uninformed view of the relationship of the Mosaic law to the Christian. Paul says to the strong, bear with them and show love to them. But then also to the weak, he says, don't judge 
the Gentile Christian. Don't judge the more knowledgeable, stronger in faith Jewish Christian who is able to, as by the Lord's command to Peter, to take and eat of all of these meats, or as Paul would say, God has now declared clean what was previously unclean. Don't judge those who take of that freedom. Why? Because we all serve the same Lord. We all serve the same Lord, and we're all going to be judged by the same Lord. We're not to judge one another. Jesus is the judge. And the core application of this is acceptance, reception, and love. Mutual love, mutual respect, mutual deference, giving to the other for the sake of the spiritual health of other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not about their physical health when we're talking about food and these different things. It's about their spiritual health. He says, don't destroy the work of God for food. So we're talking about weak, probably newer Christians, Jewish Christians who are still, who still feel bound to these restrictions of the Mosaic law. And then stronger, more mature Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who see these ritualistic practices of the Mosaic law as being fulfilled in Christ and no longer specifically obligatory to us as New Covenant Christians. That's the issue. Are there applications for us today beyond the Jew-Gentile Mosaic law issue? I think there are, but we have to be more careful. We have to think harder and more clearly about those applications and not just say Romans 14, 15 just applies to every situation where we disagree as Christians. I'll give you one example and I'll close with this. There are people who today would call themselves Christians, even call themselves evangelicals, who would say that homosexual behavior is okay. Right? Is that a disputable matter, a Romans 14, 15 disputable matter? I would say absolutely not. Absolutely not. In that, we are not dealing with a matter of just disagreement, a disputable matter between brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, and one of the reasons we're not is because we're not dealing with just specifically a mosaic ceremonial or ritualistic law, are we? We're dealing with a core command of the moral will of God that transcends the Mosaic Covenant. In Genesis 19, God leveled Sodom and Gomorrah for their immoral behavior. That's before the law. That's before Sinai, right? In the law of God, he prohibits homosexuality. And after... The coming of Christ and his resurrection now in the new covenant era, the New Testament in many places condemns homosexuality. So we're not dealing with an issue of disagreement about whether as a Jewish Christian I still have to obey this certain aspect of the Jewish law. That's not what we're talking about there. There we're talking about somebody who has denied the scriptures, denied the will of God, and has wandered off into apostasy. That's not an area of Christian disagreement. That's an area of heresy and rebellion against God in Scripture. So, 
They might want to go to Romans 14 and 15 and say this is a disputable matter. They're wrongly understanding and wrongly applying Romans 14 and 15 to that situation. So that's why I say we have to be careful about how we apply. It doesn't apply to everything. It doesn't apply to everything where we have a disagreement between believers. I think we have to carefully see how, what Paul means here and how it is to be applied. The core issue is we need to love one another, defer to one another as Christians, but that doesn't mean that any and every behavior is acceptable under God as a disputable matter. There are some things that, regardless of whether it's in the Mosaic Law or not, is absolutely forbidden by the law of Christ and is not a disputable matter. And immoral sexual behavior is one of those. So we need to not try to fit everything into this passage, but we do need to remember the core exhortation, and that is to love one another and defer to one another in the body, even when we have disagreements about what we should obey and not obey in some of these specific matters. And we'll get into more detail as we walk through the passage. But let's remember to love and accept one another because we all serve the same Lord. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you, Lord, for these words, for the words of Paul. They're challenging to read and to understand and especially to apply to our situation in 2019 America. We're not dealing with the same issues that Paul was dealing with in trying to bring together a Jewish and a Gentile congregation in one place. But Father, we do have challenges. We do have disagreements. We do have things where we disagree with one another and we can learn the overriding truth from this passage and that is to love one another and to bear with one another. God, help us to receive and apply this main truth to our lives. And then, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom as we think about the best way to take these words and apply them to matters of disagreement that we might have today between believers in Christ. Give us wisdom, Father, from your word. Lord, I pray that you would walk with us as your people, guide us into your truth, May your spirit show us and guide us into your word of truth and help us to apply it in very specific situations in our lives. May we, may we be attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our minds and our consciences. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness for all of our sins. Thank you that we are declared righteous in your sight because of the redemption of Christ Jesus. So, Lord, may all glory and praise go to you and your grace. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.